spiritual things this morning that you'll be benefited and we want to point you to the scriptures and how they work into real life as we're living it here in the 21st century. This show is about being a first century Christian here in the 21st century by getting back beyond all of the different traditions of men back to the scriptures. And so when you call in, which this is a live call-in show, I'll give you the number in just a second, but when you call in, we're going to try to point you to the scriptures so you can look them up for yourself so you can read about what God says about it, and then you can decide how you need to respond to that and hope that you'll respond in, in simple, plain obedience by a simple, plain reading of the Scriptures. You can reach We Are Just Christians here uh, live this morning at 772-340-1590. That's 772-340-1590. Ray there at the station will patch you right through to us. And we can have a conversation. The way this works, in case you're new to the show, uh, we're not here to argue with you or cut you off. If you want to disagree, we are perfectly fine with that. In fact, we like it if you call up and say, I'm not even a believer or I disagree with you. That will be fine. But we're not going to have some kind of confrontation. We're going to talk about the Scriptures. We're going to try to give you reason why we agree or disagree, analyze an issue, break it down, see if we can come to some understanding. If we don't, we're going to always give you the last word on that. We're not here to embarrass you in any way. So you feel free to call in, agree or disagree, if you've got a call or comment about the show or anything involving the Scriptures or anything spiritual, something that's gone on in your life, something, experience you had with religious people or some, some hypocritical pastor somewhere, we'd be glad to talk with you about that. You call in. If you've got some question about what you think the Bible says about science or What's going on in the world today? You want to talk about politics to a degree. We'll be glad to talk about that. We're not here to endorse particular candidates or take political positions that way. But everything is religion and politics. They intersect. And so we'll try to give you some scriptural background on how you can make choices on that. Mike, uh, one thing I'd like to say is basically one of the reasons why we keep leaning on the scripture, and you've mentioned it. I, I didn't count the number of times you mentioned it this morning, but it was quite a few. The reason we do that is John 12:48 because I want our listeners if we have some new ones especially I've, I've said this before to read John 12:48 Jesus is speaking and he says he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day that makes the scripture and what Jesus says yes. essential. very important essential you know I was telling somebody yesterday um well, at least I was thinking about it during the conversation we were having. I don't know if I actually said that out loud, but I probably said it before on this show. That uh, I, I've just been taken aback, in the la- even in the last few years now as an older man and having been done, done this for all, most all of my life, preaching and teaching the Word, just how uh, powerful, just how demanding the, the words of Scripture are, and particularly the words of Jesus as He challenges us. Uh, to look in our hearts and look at what we're doing. And it's it's much more than when I was younger, I thought it was powerful, you know. And, and, but now that I'm older and I know myself better, now I really see the ways I squirm under the, under the power of the Word, you know. And 
the, the, the mental games that you play and, and all that. And God demands honesty and truth, and that's the only way we ever get anywhere. He demands a contrite heart. But, and that's true for all of us. And so um, that's, that's what separates good people from bad people. In general, the good people are people that, although they, when they've done wrong, they're willing to take a clear look at themselves and evaluate their behavior. They're willing to evaluate their behavior in, a, in an honest fashion, as honest as they can at that point in their life. Bad people are unwilling to evaluate their behavior and make excuses and deflect on other people because they want what they want and they're going to get it. That's a bad person. Yes. And, and I don't care if they're wearing a religious clothes or not. That's a bad person. And, and good people are willing to then, with a contrite heart, take a look at themselves and, and, and evaluate their behavior a, a, in a way that animals can't, for example, anything like that. But l- let me get back to the numbers here real quick, and we'll dive into this kind of maybe a little more, Gary. Well, Se- I, the, okay, go ahead. Let uh, me get the numbers saying contact. It's 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the call-in number. If you would like to uh, text us, uh, you can text me, Mike, at 772-260-6120. You can text Gary at 772-260-6220, or two text numbers. You can text us during the show, and we'll try to respond if we can, either on the air or privately, <clears throat> or you can text us any time during the week. Well, you know, Gary, it looks like we have a, a call here already, so... Um, let's go to the call. Are you there? Yes, Mike. How you doing? This is Ken. Good. This is Ken. Speak up a little bit, Ken. I'm I'm half deaf, you know. So. You got better. Uh, that's better. Thank you. What's on your mind? Uh, I want to talk about. You want to talk about what? The sacrifice of praise. We 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 lost uh, you there. It's it just cut back down. I don't know what's going on here. Uh. Try it again. You want to talk about, I heard, I think, the Tabernacle of Praise or? Try again, Ken. I just can't quite catch it. Uh, We're not getting him. I'm not getting him at all. Let me try bumping you up. That's probably a mistake on my end, but I'm going to try it anyway. I'll keep hearing the word praise. Sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice. Now I got that. Thank you. Well, I think we kind of got in this a little bit last week if I'm not mistaken go ahead what, what's your question or comment okay first one is Hebrews 13 15 and 16 okay I didn't catch that line. Hebrews 13 15 and 16 Hebrews okay gotcha that's, that's the main verse okay that says, therefore, by him, I think that's referring to Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Yes. So, obviously, the book of Hebrews has a lot of connotation for the, for the Hebrew Christians at that time, who were strongly connected to the teaching of the Old Testament in their background. And the writer of this book is then bringing them forward and saying, now God is, this has all been pointing to Christ, who is the better mediator of a better covenant and so forth. That's what early in the book. So what's your take on this, Ken? Before I give you mine. Okay. 
talk about uh, what is the sacrifice of praise, uh, some examples of it, and, uh, and kind of this relationship with tabernacles and the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the fruit of our lips, he says. Okay, so uh, first of all, this, this verse pretty much gives a definition of what it is. Well, he says, do not forget to do good and share. Is this is the only the only sacrifice we can offer to God. We don't offer uh, animals anymore. That's gone. Uh, we we offer offerings, but God doesn't need our offering. The church needs our offering. Our Christian brothers might need our offering. Our family needs our money. Uh, the poor need our money. Well, says, God doesn't. So that's obviously with other humans there. That's what you're referring to in verse 16, right? What do you think about that? I did not catch that. It's break. It's coming in and out on us, Ken. I'm sorry about that. I apologize to our listeners, but um, we're only catching part of your words. Why would why would sacrifice? Why would praise be a sacrifice? Was the question. Yes. What's your answer to that? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Acts fifteen twenty five and Job one twenty one. Uh, Acts fifteen twenty five. Oh no, sixteen twenty five. Sixteen twenty five, and what's the other one? Job one twenty one. Okay, I think I know what those are, but let's read them for our listeners here. Let me go over here and and grab them. Um, Acts sixteen, right? 16. Yeah. All right. This is where it says that Paul and Silas were singing and praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them about midnight. They'd been thrown in prison for preaching and, and at, at Philippi, I believe. And um, all the prisoners were loosened when there was an earthquake. So they were praying and singing hymns to God, whom Neo. Of course, we're to sing hymns, Ephesians 5, together, uh, which is a fruit of our lips. The question I have about the, whether we give this sacrifice of praise the fruit of our lips, whether it's, is it singing or is it speaking? It's probably both, because both involve words that edify or build up or praise Glorify God. And this word thanks, the giving of thanks here is um, uh, a general word for saying back to God what's true about him, homo logeo. So we say back to God what's true, how great he is, how kind he is, all those things about God. So apparently Paul and Silas were doing this. Oh, the other one, the other passage that you mentioned, uh, Job one twenty one. I believe you said famous verse in Job and he said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord which is the word Barak in Hebrew which means to thank or to bless um, thanksgiving and blessing are the same thing oh, what's, what's that? the key thing is here what was their situation when they were praising Oh, they were in terrible circumstances, right? Right. right that's a good point. It's not easy to praise God when you don't have any money. And, and I think that's something that... It's not easy to praise God when you're sick. 
Yes, that's right. Well, basically, I think one of the things I'm going I'm going to go back just a little bit, and what's coming up to my mind is is what he says in Romans 12, 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which you which is your reasonable service. Basically, everything you do uh, should be done to the Lord. I mean, that's part of uh, another passage that I'm, I was trying to look up here and haven't, hadn't got right before me, but everything we do, whether it's praise, whether it's our action, whether it was... What was Paul and Silas doing? They were also being an example for someone that watched what they were doing. Yes. Well, you know, the thing about it is, too, and we've spoken about this here on many occasions the last few years, circumstantially, is this passage in First Thessalonians 5. There's like two of these or three of these in the New Testament. This one comes to mind. First Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And the key word in that passage is the word everything. I think that's what you're getting at, Ken, isn't it? We, Christians are not just giving. We see on Facebook, everybody putting, oh, I'm having, I'm having a blessed day. And what they mean is uh, the traffic was light. They were able to get the coffee just like they wanted to. And, you know, and found the right, going, place in the, the right place in the parking lot of work and everything's going swimmingly well. And so now they're giving thanks. Well, that's nice. There's nothing bad about that. But that's, that's the easy part, isn't it? Yeah. The hard part is in everything give thanks, even in everything we're experiencing. And so uh, you're right about that, the circumstance of Paul and, and Silas and Job. Uh, go ahead, Ken. I think you have more to say about this. It's not easy to praise God when you're sick. Okay. Uh, Gary, Gary mentioned in my next scripture, Romans 12, okay. 1 and 2. You ought to be afraid of that, but Gary's thinking the same way you are. <laughs> A living sacrifice was foreign to the Jews. They didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. Only dead, right? Yeah, only dead sacrifices. They didn't know what a living sacrifice was. We are living sacrifice to God. You know, sim- similar to the passage that Mike... Right, say that again? No, go ahead, Ken. He, he jumped on you. What were you saying? Okay, the only, the only sacrifice we have is a sacrifice of praise. And that's the, that's the kind of sacrifice God wants. Now, I've got some other scriptures. Um, let's look at Matthew 17, 1 through 4. Slightly off topic, but still relevant. Oh, well, I got it. I'll, I'll read it. You can comment on it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. With him, and Peter said, answered and said to Jesus, "Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." That's the one through four. Goes on and says, "Then God says out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear him." So, what what's your connection to that verse? Slightly off topic, but still relevant. You think it's the Feast of Tabernacles? Yes. You're talking about building a sukkah, which is a, a booth. Or a... Right. Green boughs or skins, other materials, or a movable temple of God. The word is skene in Greek here, which means... Yeah. It seems Elijah and Mo. it seems to me he's wanting to build some place for them to stay. 
It's not he's, he's, doesn't say he's going to build an altar to them. I think that's what people have in mind. He's going to build. He's going to say he's going to build an altar to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. I think he's going to build a place for them to live or stay with him, stay there, so they can be on earth, huh? Yes, and that the Feast of Tabernacles was about God dwelling with them in the wilderness as they were in their tents. He was dwelling with them in the tabernacle, and. Uh, Tabernacle. Right. It's it's an it's is the indwelling as it were. Tabernacle. The whole idea of tabernacles is dwelling with God. Whether he whether he comes and dwells with us, or will we go to heaven and dwell with him? Yes, because God is with them is the idea. Um, I was trying to find a scripture here um, that I can't put my finger on now well there's a parallel scripture to the one you mentioned Mike about in Thessalonians in 1 Corinthians 10 he says therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God that goes back to the idea that all of the things that we do as a living sacrifice should reflect God and this, that's, uh, that's often where that's, that's the thing that I have the most trouble with I forget that the things that people that are watching me, the things that I do, should reflect God in me, and sometimes they don't. No, they don't. And that's the problem. Well, the other verse that comes to mind, Ken, that may be related to you, I don't know if you're going to go here, is John 1.10, about Jesus being the true light. And it says he, he was um, in the world, and, and the world did not know him. Uh, the world... It was well. I think I've read too far here. Verse fourteen, he came into his own; his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's possible John's referring to this very event of the transfiguration here when he writes about this later. But that word dwelt is the same word for tabernacle. The word that's used for tabernacle there in, in uh, the story of the transfiguration, that's the noun. The verb form of that word is this word, dwelt here, dwelled. That's what you're getting out of tabernacles. That's why I'm saying a tabernacle is a place to live. So they wanted, he wanted Moses and Elijah to live there with Jesus or stay there or be there with them. And God's saying, here's my son, hear him. He's the one dwelling. He came and he is dwelling among you already. So, uh, and pe- I think people are looking for a way for Christ to dwell in them or, or for them to dwell in Christ and... That way's already been shown. They're looking for some mystical way for that to happen. I think that way's already been shown. What, what else were you going to say about this? What point are you going to make with this, Ken? That's why it, it's, uh, when you talk about feet tabernacles, you're talking about praise, thanksgiving, and joy. Yes, he inhabits the praises of Israel, right? Yes. That's a, that has been talked about a lot over time as to the exact meaning of that. It's quite a powerful verse. 
as to how it is that God can live in the praises of Israel. What, now, you can comment on this in a second, but what I've always really understood it to mean, Ken, that those who praise God, as they praise Him, He is drawing closer to, the, to them, and the praise that they offer changes them. And therefore, it's in, he's dwelling in them. Those who don't praise God, God remains distant from them. So he's not dwelling in them. Hmm? Right. Pres- yes, uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Yes, and you know, our society has come to the point where it can be socially unacceptable to say uh, anything about God at all, except to curse his name, ask him to damn things and curse his name, um, or use it vainly, but um, I said something the other day, to someone, I don't know who it was, about something I need to do. And I said, well, Lord, the Lord willing, I'll do that. And, you know, they kind of blinked. What could, <laughs> what could this crazy person mean? By the Lord willing, I will do this or that, you know. But, but you, you bring, if you, and, and that's people's reaction when you bring God in any situation. Now, I understand that because, um, frankly, as a preacher, People use God against me all the time uh, in the sense that um, they're, they're up to no good. They're trying to deceive me or other people in some way or play me because they think I, ha- I owe that one, I need to give them money or something else. And they, they immediately throw out all the God words at me. And it causes a little bit of cynicism in me to realize that probably... They only are using God because they think it's going to gain some advantage with me. And it, it irritates me. It, it hurts me. So, yes, that's why, but, that, and that's, but that's why people are leery of praising God openly or bringing God up because they, it has been used so often as a tool of manipulation by dishonorable honorable people, both religious and non-religious. And it becomes kind of a trump card. If they say, well, you know, people tell me all the time, Ken, when they're, they're contradicting the Bible and they'll say, well, God said this to me or God told me that God showed me this or God led me to this. And I'm going, I'm shaking my head. No, I, that's contradictory to what God says. Uh, they're, they're trying to force me by throwing God in the conversation to agree with them. I believe that's an improper use of, of this of God in conversation, but to thank God for your blessings everywhere you go openly and talk about him in your life in a, a plain way is not a, is not a problem. It's what should be done. He should always be at the forefront of our thoughts and in our heart, everything that we do, everything that we do. And I, I'm, I'm going to interject something in here from first John chapter two. Uh, I want to start reading with verse 27 and, and this is not so obvious, but I want you to think about what we're really saying here. In verse 27, he says, But the anointing which you have received from him 
abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. What's this really implying? To me, this implies that that anointing he's talking about is what John and the rest of the apostles wrote to us. It is basically the word of God within us that abides in us, and when the word of God abides in us, God abides in us. Right. This is the thing, um, this is the thing I think was the misunderstanding uh, in the, in Deuteronomy 6 about the mezuzah, mezuzah, however you say it, uh, about putting the, having a phylactery on your hand and writing the, the, uh, the word of God on the doorpost of your house and binding it on your hand and so forth. This was really an expression not of some literal thing they were supposed to do particularly, but of the fact that whenever they, wherever they were, in their home, out in the way, whatever their hand reached to do something, the word of God was guiding that hand. Whatever their eyes were seeing as they looked at things, it was filtered by the word of God. It was a continual understanding and acknowledgement of God's presence in all that they thought and did and saw. And uh, that's what's missing from so much what we call religion or even spirituality. That's what's really missing. And so when we say that God inhabits the praises of Israel, I think that's the part of the idea that those who actually praise God uh, continually with this sacrifice of praise, it will certainly change your behavior. It's, It's difficult for it not to over time. Unless you harden your heart against it, of course. Ken, what else you want to say about this? Okay, I, I got some scriptures. I have the scriptures uh, that I just want to uh, give you to look up. I don't want to go through all of them, you know. But I, you know, you can look at through them, and maybe uh, the listeners can look through them uh, just at their leisure. Um, so let me just say that most of them are in Psalms. Uh, Psalms 50 verses 22 and 23 okay. Psalm 51 verses 10 through 17 okay. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5 okay. uh, Psalm 103 uh, I just put verses 1 through 6 but the whole psalm is good gotcha. Psalm 107, 21 and 22. Psalm 116, verse 17. And Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to tell you what Psalm 22, 3 says. It says, God inhabits our praises or dwells in our praises. Of what you're doing with your hands, for good or evil. Yes, and so um, that's how I've interpreted Deuteronomy 6, and I think that's how it was probably meant to be interpreted. Uh, He wasn't saying, because he mentions the talk to your son in the way when you rise up, when you sit down. Well, he wasn't saying only do it then and make a ritual of it. He he was telling them, he was speaking in all of life, he was saying, wherever you go with your son, you talk to him about the word of God. 
Whatever you do. do what, and whatever you do, you do it according to the will of God. And you think about what should be done about that. But to, to, a, to most people in modern society, probably always been this way. Um, there's this separation between church and life, and life itself, between religion and life. My, my wife uh, was t- kidding me a little bit about one of my complaints about people talking about these Christians having a prayer life. And I've always objected to that. And, and you know, because I have, I object to things. People think I'm crazy. My objection to the phrase prayer life is not that people shouldn't pray all the time. It's that I think in their own mind they're distinguishing their whole life from, a, from prayer. And so their life is here and their prayer is over there. And so they have, a, they have a gym life, they have a work life, they have a prayer life. And, and a hobby life. And a hobby life and, and, you know, and, and, a, and a vacation life that's different than church life because they go on vacation from church and everything else and from religion. And so uh, w- when they're having sports night with the guys, they curse and swear and drink because that's not church. And they don't pray then because that's not part of their prayer life. Now, I'm probably mischaracterizing that for a lot of people, but I think that's the gist of it for, for in Christianity. We want to separate all these things out when it's about all of life. There's this Presbyterian preacher named Douglas Wilson. And he and I would agree about a lot of things. We disagree about a lot of things, too, because he's an extreme Calvinist. And you can follow his blog. It's Blog and May Blog is the name of his blog. He's very clever. He's witty. He's one of the most intelligent modern writers I've ever read from. He's very prolific. And the theme of his, he runs a very conservative uh, Presbyterian church group out in Utah. And um, his theme of his church, I like, all of Christ for all of life. That's the basis of all of his work, he says. All of Christ for all of life. Now, he and I probably would apply that differently, I'm sure. But I think that's a pretty good summation of this sacrifice of praise in that way. So, but he's interesting to read if you haven't read Douglas Wilson. He was a friend of Christopher Dawkins, the atheist, and so forth, if believe it or not. And this guy's about as ardent a theist and religious person as you can imagine. But Dawkins apparently, or no, Christopher Hitchens. I got it wrong. Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens apparently admired this fellow and traveled around with him some in the car because he felt like he was at least living out his Christianity in a real way. And Kitchen said most Christians aren't. So anyway, uh, that's another <laughs> long story. We can, that's another whole show. I think we did some of that on that a while back, a year or two ago. What do you, what do you, got, what do you think about that, Ken? Make Jews jealous? Okay. I can, I can see that it did. I think I can see that it did make Jews jealous. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, some of the things Paul wrote in the Galatian letter sure would have. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Mm-hmm. And wedding. Right. From Jeremiah uh, thirty-three sixteen. Okay, didn't know that. Uh huh. Right, right, it is. And we glorify him by what we say as well as what we do. And if we live the right kind of life, the Bible says we will cause others to glorify him in the day of visitation, um, which is another part of it, to bring glory to God. And glory just means to magnify or make, make great or make greater. And when Christians then show forth the excellencies of him who called us to his glory and virtue, Peter says, by what we do. And, and that's a challenging, daunting thing, but it can be done. It, do, it is done. Or we can bring shame and reproach, depending on what we're, what we're doing. Um, I wanted to say two, two things. We've got a couple texts on some of this that I want to get to in a minute. Um, but... Um, I looked up, Ken, this uh, Tabernacle of David since I think you had called in about it last week or week before. I, I looked up briefly about it. And um, it, it seems to be in the denominational world that this is something that is expected to happen in the future during the millennium so that Jews and Gentiles can worship together. But I don't believe that's the problem. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but I think I don't think that's the proper application of that verse at all. In the New Testament, this tabernacle of David is basically mentioned in Acts 15, uh, where they're having a discussion about Paul baptizing Cornelius, this Gentile, and what the Gentiles should do now that they're starting to become Christians. And um, uh, James, the... Uh, half-brother Jesus, I believe, or one of the elders there in Jerusalem says uh, in verse 13, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God 
at the first visit of the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with uh, speaking about the Cornelius, God sending Peter to Cornelius the Gentile. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and this is verse 16 of Acts 15, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known from God, known to God from eternity are all his works. Now, this is not a prophecy about the future. Uh, James is referring to a prophecy from the past at his time that was being fulfilled at the present time that James was speaking. So this tabernacle of David, which had fallen down, was something that, that David had built, a place of praise for the Lord. And in the prophecy, whether James understood it, it was linked to the Gentiles, which had always been the purpose of God. It had always been the purpose of God, even in building the first temple, to use that as a vehicle at, po- at some point to bring the Gentiles in. And the tabernacle of David was something that was particularly notable for this. And Peter, uh, James is just saying that what, Christ, what Peter's done here in the church in bringing in these Gentiles is, is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. So in that sense, I believe the present-day true church of Jesus Christ is the tabernacle of David because it includes both Jew and Gentile, both giving praise to God and both dwelling in him. That's how I would look at it, not as a future millennial prophecy. What do you think about that? I agree. You agree? I totally And let me tell you, let me give you a couple of verses here. Okay. This is Psalm uh, 107. Uh, verses 21 and 22. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men and let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Uh, Psalm 108, verse 3. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. You know, and I've mentioned this before, and it becomes more striking all the time. That, And I knew this before, but since my visit to Israel in January, I am struck by how many scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New, are, and in the Gospel, and the Gospels in particular, where Jesus is speaking and stuff, are really have a, a reference or an allusion to the fact that God intends to save both Jew and Gentile. And yet we have this idea that God only planned to save the Jews and there's chosen people, everybody else was cast off. And, and that just isn't the theme of the Bible. They were chosen for the purpose of bringing the Messiah to save all people. And Jesus repeats this, and, and, and I've been through this before. I don't want to go through all this again, but it's just striking to me. And here's, here are two more references from the Psalms that I hadn't really thought of in this way that you just brought up that illustrate this point exactly. This was God's purpose all along. Um, and and even, in, even in the negative way, I was reading yesterday about the Jews in John 8 saying to G, uh, Jesus, is it not true that you, we know that you're a Samaritan? They, they were calling Jesus a Samaritan because he wasn't from Judea. 
He was from up there in the northern part of Galilee. And since he associated with Samaritans and the Gentiles, he must have been a Samaritan himself. They were so locked in to this one identity as being the only one that God would uh, be pleased with. When God was trying to save the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the Jews together, and, and they, they, they were so prejudiced against that that they couldn't see it. And when you go there today, you see the same thing. Well, let me ask a question, Mike. I've, I've been asked a question, were any Gentiles saved after the Mosaic Law was put in place? Yes. But anyway, and the answer, is, I think, is yes. yes. But what we don't read about, but doesn't mean it wasn't there, we only have clues here and there, is God continued to talk and speak to the Gentiles in a patriarchal manner after the Mosaic sure. Law was put in place. The law was brought in for the, to the Jews, Jews to isolate them and to keep them in ward until the, the, the seed should come. But he continued, three. he continued to have discussions apparently with the, the, the Gentiles, though they're not recorded well, for no. us in detail. The Bible focuses then on the Jews, and that's why it says in Romans 2 that those without the law would be saved when they kept the law, meaning the law that had been given to them. They had to keep the law that was given. Now, did most Gentiles keep the law that was given to them? No, they did more, no better, maybe worse, worse than the Jews. The Jews didn't keep the law that was given to them either. So uh, that's the whole point of it all. But we know he was speaking to them. We have Balaam as an example. Uh, before the law, we have Melchizedek as an example. He sent, he sent Jonah to them. Yes. As even only one of the prophets, he sent Jonah to the Gentiles. So so he 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 made himself known to them. He he And accepted their repentance. And accepted their repentance. Right. This 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 is something that, that I think is ignored, not only just like you say in Israel, but I think it's ignored over here in the well, church. Yes, yes it is. And and that's the problem of this millennial of of millennial teaching. It just continues to accentuate this divide when the gospel is about all men. Well, um, let me get, Ken, to a couple of the texts that, that came in uh, that I didn't catch at first about what was going on. It's, one of them's kind of humorous. John says, I want to know how they knew it was Moses or Elijah. Did they have name tags? Well, I've wondered that too. I, I think it, was, it, it must be obvious by who they were and what they were doing, who they were. Uh, it, the same question is asked, how did the people know it was Jesus that was talking? You know, they didn't, have, uh, but but they did know, and uh, we've probably lost some things. And maybe it was revealed to them who they were uh, by what they were. I don't know the answer to that. He says um, some of this. Uh, well, if for you, the, as a matter of fact, Mike, we don't know how long that all all of them talked together before what was described took place. They may have said they may have said, who, who, "I'm who Elijah" they, or "I'm right. Moses." I mean. We don't know. All we have is just what happened. We yes. don't have the conversation. That we took don't place. have the conversation. And it says they were talking with each other. Yeah, basically. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I think we often, when we study the Bible, we ignore the fact that there are some things that we need to infer from what's said, and right. it's a necessary inference right. that they knew who it was. Now, right on the other side of that coin, now then you have Jesus or Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, and. I think part of the reason he went up and kissed him is so that the guards who were there would know who he was. this is the guy, right? Uh, right. Because, you know, all those long-haired hippies with beards, they all look alike. 
<laughs> like the apostles and Jesus. No, no, so that's probably part of the reason. So there was a little bit of that problem of who's who in there. And uh, th- then you have, um, uh, they, um, it says, uh, hang on, I got here. Uh, when we were talking about changing our conversation to be thankful and uh, to give thanks and to focus on praise, even in difficult circumstances, he says, uh, this reminds me of the power of positive thinking. Well, well there's, a, there's a grain or element of truth in the power of positive thinking. Uh, it, it, that old line is just carried too far and becomes a philosophy of men. It's not an all-encompassing thing, but I believe the Bible does talk about us uh, uh, who are believers in God, knowing God has all power, and we don't we don't let circumstances run us completely amok because we know that God has power, and He is on our side. That's the whole point of Romans eight about what can separate from the love of Christ can height nor depth nor anything other thing. No, because Christ is with us, and if God is with us, who can be against us? In reality, they can kill us, but they can't really harm us. So there is some element of truth to that. Don't but you can them. retrain your brain to be thankful all the time. You can you can train your brain and your thoughts to be thankful even in spite of difficulties. And you will be amazed at what that does in your ability to take care of the difficulties and handle them, yeah. to overcome them. You'll be amazed what it does. Don't fear those that can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul or destroy both right. body and soul in hell. And part of what's happening to people today in the last few months because of isolation, is uh, is that they have lost the contact they have with other people, other Christians. The, they've been focused so much in the news, other things, on the negative aspects and the dangers that their brain has been retrained to be negative and think. And let me tell you something. If you sit around and watch CNN or Fox News all day long, you're going to have a different mindset than if you just go out and live life. And I'm not saying that all things that's bad to do that. I'm saying, but all day long, every day, your brain will be retrained in in a negative way. Well, and, people, people are doing that, Mike. Well, because they're isolated. Well, and quite frankly, guess what? And I'm seeing I'm seeing an increase in the violence. Well, there's a, a tremendous increase in suicide, and mental mental health yep. issues, and in and in violence because people are 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 are. Well, isolation has always been one tactic of dictators to control yes. populations. Why do you think the founding fathers, oh, here we go again on this, one of the first rights that they listed that the government cannot right take away assemble. is the right to freely assemble. They were smart. They understood how dictators and how tyrants work. They isolate people from one another by fear, and then they have a greater chance of controlling the population. We're, and the same thing happens to people in, in religion in their life. They get isolated by circumstances, by fear. By, they, get, they get sick and they have to stay home. And, and they spiral downward because they're oftentimes neglecting praise and thanksgiving. They're not having contact with other humans, other Christians to edify them, build them up, encourage them, this kind of thing. And so it becomes a very negative thing. Uh, to them, and um, you know, th- th- it's all part of that. And then, uh, 
Of course, any kids as Ken and says, I'm changing the name of your show to the Mike, Gary, and Ken show. But I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you calling in, Ken, and giving us things to think about. And we really do. All of our callers, we're really glad that you call in. And uh, uh, we, we'll try to, we try to take what you're saying uh, seriously, agree or disagree. Well, before, you, before we run out of time, Mike. We're about out of time. We're well, eight or nine close. minutes, but I mean, you know. I, I want to go back to this idea of basically that Christianity is something that involves our entire person and all of our life. Because I want to go back to First John 2 and 27 again. Because I looked up a little bit of this, and he, he talks about in verse, uh, verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Well, what is that anointing? The Greek word there means basically something like a, a cream or an unguent that you just smear all over yourself. You, you just rub it all over your entire body. And he says, basically, that abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you, as that same smearing teaches you concerning all things, and it is true, it is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. Basically, this passage is saying when the word of God is smeared all over you and you become part of it, you abide in Christ, and Christ abides in you. I believe that's what this passage is getting at, and that means all the time. You don't just, I, I never had an occasion to to basically have to use a cream or an ointment in such, such a way that I smeared it all over me, but that's what he's implying here, that it's, you're, you're, you're completely covered with this. You're immersed in it, so, so to speak, if you will. That seems to be the uh, idea that's in the Greek definition from Strong's that I get. Yeah. What do you it think is. about that? I think that's right. I think that's what anointing is. Well, they would pour oil on their head a- as a symbol of, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, of approval yes. or of a commission. Sometimes they use it for health purposes. They anoint the head with oil. It was kind of an aromatherapy or an oil therapy. They used all those things. And he's saying the word of God has to be poured out and rubbed all over you. Is the, I, I right. think you're right about that. So uh, I want you to think about that verse uh, in 1 John 2 and 27. I think that's, that's an important verse when we talk about doing all that you do in the name and the glory of God. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, the one John says uh, Jonah was so against the Gentiles, more or less, a, a whale had to puke him up on the beach before he would go talk to him. And that's about right. <laughs> I think literally most, many people think Jonah died in the belly of the whale and God resurrected him. And he was puked up on the beach because that was a figure Jesus uses for his own resurrection. I don't know about that, but I do know he was as good as dead. And he prayed, he prayed the prayer of salvation to the Lord in the belly of the fish. Not the, the Bible didn't say whale, at least in the original language. Ken, are you still there? But finish us off here. We're going. We got about six minutes left. Hey, I'm going to tell you when I think the rebuilding of the Tabernacle of David started. When Christ was crucified and the curtain in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom and we had access to the Holy of Holies, that was the start of the rebuilding of the tabernacle. Yeah, I believe that's right. I believe that's a strong symbol of the opening up of access to God to all who would come in faith. And um, it took some a few years from that point in time of the beginning of the church in Acts 2 
until you get to Acts 10, what is uh, maybe 10 years or so, we think, before the gospel was preached to Cornelius there um, at Caesarea. But... Um, well, I'll ask you a question, Mike. Before the was Gentiles it, actually began to come in. Was it there or was it at the resurrection? Well, he's the, the temple was symbolically rent. There was no access to anyone. I mean, the act, that, that's, a, that's symbolic. That happened... That happened at the crucifixion. Now, the other thing that happened at the resurrection was other saints were raised up at the resurrection all throughout Jerusalem. It's mentioned in that context. I, you know, and I, I get your point, Gary, that these are distinct, discrete events. And without the resurrection, the crucifixion doesn't mean very much. Right. I understand that point. From well, the standpoint the- of prophecy, looking back, pretty much all of that, the events of the time of the Messiah kind of can be viewed from looking forward from the pro, from the Old Testament, looking back to us as almost one event. Now, now we can break it all down, but um, well, see, I've there's always, a reason why that temple that fell was rent in two. Right, and and I believe that to to put in place the new, you have to do away with the old. Well, there's but, a reason but, why it was opened up. It was a it was a barrier. To anyone, yes. now it's opened up is the idea I think Ken's making, and I don't disagree with that. But you, you have to take take away the old. Well, the old was taken away when he nailed it to the cross. It says, it, and basically, and 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 physically, it was taken away in seventy A.D. when the temple was destroyed, and you could no longer well, in any way. Well, so there, there's well, a, there's, there, a, there's a period there's a there's a period of time, time when all these events are unfolding. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah, it's a discrete event. All is happening. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is basically there is a period of time that's basically a generation. Some, I think, some forty years between uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the destruction of the old system physically. And that's what actually you know we were we were seeing this all the this old test the old system was destroyed was yes. destroyed spiritually before it was destroyed physically. Physically, yes. And, and all those events contributed to that eventual outcome. It didn't all happen at one thing. Okay. It's like Jesus, when did Jesus become God's son? When was he begotten? Well, he, he was obviously begotten to Mary uh, at, when he was impregnated, when she, she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. But, hang on. <coughs> Pardon me. Um the, um, but the scriptures say he, he be, was begotten as son of God at, at the resurrection, which doesn't make as much sense to us the way we look at being begotten. Standpoint. And yet, and it's probably both events were together. They go together in that sense. Okay, we've got a couple minutes left. I'm showing about two, about two minutes left here, Ken. Uh, one last comment, and then we're going to close it out. Okay, um, we, you mentioned we alluded to uh, something that we can talk about in the future, and that is the olive tree and being grafted into the olive tree. That's in a very important figure, and I got some. I got. Some, I took some pictures of the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, which one of them is very striking, and I'll talk about that later on too, because it very well illustrates. Paul's point about the old olive tree and the new branches shooting out from the old olive stump. Well, our time is uh, basically gone today. 
Thank uh, you for calling, Ken. One last comment, Gary. Go ahead. Uh, well, actually, the Tabernacle of David is mentioned in three scriptures that I found. Mamus 9 is the one you quoted. Yeah. Acts 15 is the one I believe Ken quoted. But Isaiah 16, 5, 4 and 5 also is a messianic setting of that, if, if, our, re, if our listeners are interested in looking. At Isaiah 15? Okay. Isaiah 16, 16, verses 4 and 5. Okay. Very good. We thank you for listening today. We really appreciate it. Hope you'll uh, take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. And you can listen to podcasts of this radio show and all the sermons from the church. You can find out about the church. We'd like to invite you to come and be with us today. We meet at uh, two, we meet two times today at 10 o'clock for Bible study here in a few minutes. And we meet at 11 o'clock for worship. And you can join us at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you'll tune in again next week. May God bless you. Open my cup, open, open.